Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive. For Thursday, August 31st, 2023, I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Tesla faces multiple U.S. investigations. Ford expands its line of credit by billions to weather market uncertainties, and a study gives the most stolen vehicles and the least stolen. We'll tell you what tops both lists coming up. Plus, a conversation about the potential for hydrogen as a zero emissions fuel source for the auto industry. We need to invest in the infrastructure equally for both battery electric and for fuel cell electric vehicles because in reality, we're going to need both if we are going to really achieve our decarbonization goals. We can't do it with one technology alone. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Investigations connected to Tesla are mounting. Bloomberg reported that U.S. prosecutors are investigating a Tesla plan to purchase hard-to-get construction materials. They're looking at whether the project was an appropriate use of company funds. And the Wall Street Journal reported federal prosecutors are looking into Tesla's performance claims. This comes after Reuters reported the EV maker exaggerated the potential driving distance of its vehicles. In the purchasing investigation, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York has sent subpoenas to a number of current and former employees at the EV maker in recent weeks, seeking information related to the materials. That's according to people familiar with the probe. Those people who asked not to be identified said the requests for information focus on correspondence with Omid Afshar. He's a key lieutenant to CEO Elon Musk and the individual at the center of an internal Tesla probe into the issue. Prosecutors are reviewing a 2022 purchase order for construction material that was identified as suspicious by company officials. Afshar could not be reached for comment. Bloomberg said he later took on a role at Musk's SpaceX. The Journal reported the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan also is investigating Tesla's use of company funds on a secret project described internally as a house for Musk. A spokesperson for the Federal Prosecutor's Office declined to comment, and Musk did not immediately respond to requests for comment. It's too soon to know the damage to dealerships caused by Hurricane Idalia. The president of the Florida Automobile Dealers Association evacuated before the hurricane smashed into Florida. He said the extent of damage to dealerships was not yet known. The hurricane hit Florida's west coast Wednesday morning. It brought winds of 125 miles per hour and heavy rains. Florida's governor has declared a state of emergency in at least 46 counties. Ford has obtained a $4 billion line of credit to help it manage through what it calls uncertainties in the market. That's according to a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The revolving credit agreement adds to the $47 billion in total liquidity the automaker had at the end of the second quarter, including $30 billion in cash. A Ford spokesperson told Automotive News it gives the company additional working capital flexibility on top of its, quote, already strong liquidity position to manage through a variety of uncertainties in the present environment. In July, the automaker warned of economic headwinds. They include inflation, higher industry-wide incentives, 
electric vehicle pricing pressure, increased warranty expenses, and the potential for UAW contract negotiations to raise labor costs. Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis are two weeks from a contract deadline with the UAW and could face a strike if the sides can't reach an agreement. And finally, the top spot on the list of vehicles most likely to be stolen goes to a Dodge muscle car. A study by the Highway Lost Data Institute released today says the Dodge Charger SRT Hellcat is more than 60 times as likely to be stolen as the average 2020 to 2022 model. Dodge Charger and Challenger models with large engines frequently top the group's annual list, but the rate at which the Charger SRT Hellcat is stolen is spiking. There were about 25 whole vehicle theft claims per thousand vehicles for the 2020 to 2022 model years. That's up from 18 for 2019 to 2021 models. Another Dodge model, the Charger Hemi, was second on the list. The Infiniti Q50, Dodge Challenger, and four-wheel drive Land Rover Range Rover rounded out the top five vehicles most likely to be stolen. Meanwhile, six of the 20 models deemed least likely to be stolen were electric vehicles. That includes five Tesla models. Four-wheel drive versions of Tesla Model 3 and Model Y topped the list of least stolen vehicles. Head to autonews.com to see what other vehicles made the list. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, how do I ask you this? Now, there's a lot of investigations surrounding Tesla, and you know as well as I know, if the audience could see my fingers right now, my big quotations, big companies do what big companies do. But what makes Tesla such an easy target? You know, I don't know that they are an easy target. They are a popular one because they, they're disruptors, right? And they do things differently than others do them. And oftentimes those uh, strategies and tactics that are outside of the norm are things that attract uh, investigators and uh, sometimes prosecutors. But, you know, I mean, Tesla has pushed the rules of uh, the SEC and many other entities repeatedly uh, and really rarely been held to account. You know, that's why Elon Musk is sometimes called Teflon Musk. Uh, nothing seems to stick to him. But now the company is so big and they've got a lot of things going on. It'll be really interesting if one or more of these uh, really lands a blow. Interesting. We'll take a look at the state of hydrogen technology and whether it's any closer to becoming a significant source of zero emission energy for the industry. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. My team and I went to each car company separately. We sat down and we said, you know, what can you do? What you cannot do? How much time you need? How much going to cost you? And that pay off big time. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they come around to that idea. 
Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available wherever you get your podcasts starting September 11th. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Everybody's talking about electric vehicles as the zero emission technology that will help automakers cut carbon in their lineups. But don't forget about hydrogen. Some major automakers are still working on the technology for use in trucks, stationary electricity generation, and even passenger vehicles. Today, we hosted a live event on LinkedIn with experts who have an on-the-ground view of the hydrogen landscape. Jackie Birdsall is the Senior Engineering Manager for Toyota's Fuel Cell Integration Group, and Bernd Hyde is Senior Partner at McKinsey. They spoke with Automotive News Tech and Innovation reporters Hannah Lutz and Molly Boygon. Here's a piece of their conversation. So our first question, Jackie, we'll start with you. What are the primary applications for hydrogen fuel in automotive? Is it best for passenger, commercial, stationary uses? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, the, the beauty of hydrogen and fuel cell technology is that it's totally scalable, right? You can have a fuel cell that's small enough to power a phone or large enough to power a building, right? Anywhere from, you know, several kilowatts to a megawatt or even more. So really, it can be applied to all different types of powertrains, anything from light duty to like our Toyota Mirai to a class eight semi, like what we call project portal um, that we are going into production with Packard next year, or even large stationary applications like our one megawatt unit that we've deployed at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Burned, how do you see the role of hydrogen in the past car space going forward? A, a lot of the chatter has been around commercial, but as Jackie said, there's many different applications for hydrogen. So first of all, I, I think uh, that hydrogen and battery electric um, technologies are very complementary. In, in essence, the powertrain is both an electric powertrain. So therefore, the debate, is it um, battery electric only or will it also be fuel cell? I think we will, we will see in the next years that we will need both technologies. They were very complementary. And the interesting part is that's not only depending on the on the propulsion technology of the powertrain, but it also has to do with the infrastructure and that we will see that two infrastructures will be cheaper to society than if we just do an all electric infrastructure. So that's why we also see hydrogen as a powertrain in passenger cars. I think Burns said it perfectly. Um, hydrogen and you know fuel cell electric vehicles are complementary to BEVs, right? They're just two different use cases our job is to give these zero emission technologies um, to make them available to the customer. And then the customer can choose the application or the, choose the powertrain that best suits their lifestyle, that best suits their fleet's needs. So yeah, the, the two need to coexist. We need to invest in the infrastructure equally for both battery electric and for fuel cell electric vehicles so that they can both succeed and both be available because in reality, we're going to need both if we are going to really achieve our decarbonization goals. We can't do it with one technology alone. Jackie, I know that you drive a fuel cell vehicle, right? Can you walk us through a day in the life on a day that you need to refill? What sort of process do you need before you leave the house? I am fortunate enough to live near three hydrogen stations now. And so what I will do is if I need to refill, um, which I get about 330 miles on a fill, so I every 300 miles or so. I'll go to an app 
that's uh, managed by a company called the Hydrogen Fuel Cell Partnership. It will tell me if the stations are online or offline. And I will go to the station that is online, obviously. Um, and then I have a fueling card that comes with when you purchase or you lease in your eye, you get a $15,000 fueling card to help our customers subsidize the cost of the fuel. Um, so just swipe that. It's at a normal retail gasoline station. Um, so one of them I go to is at an Argo station. So I just go up, pull up to the hydrogen dispenser, swipe my card, attach the nozzle. Takes a little less than five minutes to refill. And then I'm back on the road. Okay. So that $15,000 refueling card, I, I think that's become pretty standard with the few fuel cell passenger vehicles that are on the market right now. Can you explain like what $15,000, what that actually would cover for, for those who aren't quite familiar with the cost of um, filling your vehicle up with hydrogen? Very interesting question, Hannah. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the cost of the pump has almost doubled since we first launched the vehicle. This is due to a number of, of factors, um, one of which is there's a, a what's called the low carbon fuel standard in California, and it gives credits for low carbon fuels. And that market has just been flooded and it's really devalued the credits. So to kind of compensate for that, um, we've seen this, the station providers, the hydrogen providers significantly increase the cost to the customers of the pump. Um, so what we're seeing now is that a 15000 dollar fuel card will probably last a customer just under three years if the prices remain where they are. Uh, but to your earlier point, there is significant funding coming in from the Department of Energy. Uh, the state is aware of the issue with the low carbon fuel standard credits. Um, and we hope that we will see the prices start to drop and, and kind of get back to where they were when they first launched the vehicle. And then the card should last, you know, six years. Okay, great. That's helpful context. Um, we do have a question from the audience. How do you think hydrogen technology will work for people in remote or, or rural areas? Bernd, would you like to start on this one? Yeah, um, I think it is not a, a topic whether it's a city or areas, but just the availability of, of infrastructure. And actually, I would even argue in urban areas, if you have access to a filling station, that even buys you more mileage because that's one of the advantages of a fuel cell uh, vehicle. You 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 have more mileage per per refilling. So therefore, if you see also of the use cases as Jackie described it, they're very complementary. If you just have short distance uh, in a city, battery electric is for most customers the best way to go. And if you have more uh, distance to commute hydrogen um, might be even the better better application for you. So uh, it hinges pretty much, Jackie has three stations around her. I think we have a bit north of 100 stations available in the US. If you want to have the same customer convenience that we have today, we're speaking something like two, 3,000 stations that are needed. But this for, for a country like the US is, is not a lot. And you always have to compare it this infrastructure will be different than today's infrastructure on on gasoline uh, that you see out there because you in many ways have competing refilling stations at the same crossing. In hydrogen, you would just do an, a better planning on where you locate these stations and then then you can cover a, a pretty large uh, area, even in rural, rural parts of the country. You know, we, we actually took out a MRI system out of the out of the vehicle so we took out the fuel cell system we repackaged it into what we call mirai in a box 
And uh, it's a kind of small portable generator that we can use to create electricity, you know, up to 80 kilowatts of electricity. And then the runtime is just dependent on how much hydrogen you have. So we can bring out a hydrogen trailer. And what we've started to use this for and are being asked to deploy it for is in rural, rural areas where we're trying to uh, promote our battery electric vehicles or our plug-in hybrid vehicles. We bring it out and we actually use our fuel cell generator to recharge the battery electric vehicles because there isn't sufficient grid or charging stations in those situations. So actually hydrogen can be um, a phenomenal solution to rural areas because it's as as easy as, as you know, bringing out the trailer instead of having to, you know, build a substation and, you know, tap into the grid. Sure. So using it as like that stationary power source that we talked about a bit at the beginning. That's right. Okay. So sort of along those lines, uh, one of our viewers is asking, is anyone talking about leasing the power source, like a battery separately from the car, the truck itself? I feel the residual value and carbon offset from effective recycling could allow for different financial terms for batteries on their own. Um, Any insight there? So for batteries, that's one thing. But you, you see similar models for, for fuel cells already now. Not that you, you have a separate ownership for the fuel cell, but think, for example, in commercial vehicles. You, for example, have zero emission commercial trucks as a, as a service. So you basically pay by the mile that you use that asset. And you, you basically have a company where you put the assets, i.e. the trucks in. You have the, the fuel, the hydrogen and you basically have also the infrastructure so that this whole risk that we are seeing here, residual value, uh, will I get the hydrogen at what cost at the pump, so that you basically take that away from the customer and you basically uh, give the customer a contract that, that he has to pay basically on the, on the miles that he's going. I think we will see more of that, especially on, on fleet businesses. Bernd Hyde is senior partner at McKinsey, and Jackie Birdsall is the senior engineering manager for Toyota's fuel cell integration group. They spoke with our own Hannah Lutz and Molly Boygon. You can find their full conversation on the Automotive News LinkedIn page. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer and Alicia Anderson. Today's episode includes reporting from our own Julie Walker, Michael Martinez, and John Irwin. You can get the latest news on probes into automakers, stolen car studies, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about bringing the idea of unreasonable hospitality to automotive service departments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you have a coworker who might be interested, tell them to give it a listen. Thanks.